How much do you usually have to put down in those scenarios or is it all over the map? It's all over the map, but usually on a house, you know, let me clarify. So under like six or 700 grand, we usually put nothing down or small, like a grand or something. Up above in that ocean front, we put eight or nine grand down, we broke the rule there, but that's still great. Eight or nine grand? We put eight or is nine it? grand down and we paid her transfer tax in Massachusetts because you can't put no, nothing down and go, hey, pay your transfer tax too. So we usually pay the transfer tax in those deals. Wow, okay, so. Welcome everyone to the Cassandra Properties Podcast. We have a, a really interesting guest today. We're going to take a, a deep dive into a, a system that uh, our guest Chris Prefontaine has put together with tremendous success on real estate terms, what we call terms or seller financing in the business. Chris is a three-time best-selling author. He has an amazing platform. Actually, I downloaded a bunch of his materials. I think they're really, really cool. He's the founder and CEO of SmartRealEstateCoach.com, and he's the host of the Smart Real Estate Coach podcast. With that, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, I I appreciate you having me, James. Looking forward to diving in. Yeah, without a doubt. So local market for you is up in Rhode Island, yes? Local for myself and my son and son-in-law would be Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. And anything outside of that, we typically have a student in that we partner with. We call it associate, but that we lock arms with and do deals. So we're all over the place. Okay. So before we get into uh, kind of nuts and bolts, and I've got so many questions I want to run through with you, how did you end up in you know, in the position where you are today. You've got a great presence on social. You've got a ton of content out there. You've written several books. How did you fall into the real estate game? Yeah, so I fell into it, so to speak, in 91. So I'm going to date myself there. So I'm coming up on 30 years here in the fall. But how I how I landed on terms. And I almost said, all right, forget it. I'm done with the real estate. Like I was that beat up. And so we, we, re- we literally said, what... If we do get back in, what are we going to do? Like, what's it going to be? So I started to define what I would operate within. And that was don't sign personally with banks. I ain't going there again. Uh, don't don't raise money because I didn't feel comfortable putting my hand on the pillow at night and doing that. Just things I was comfortable with. And then we built it so that if the market was up sideways flat, it didn't matter. And then, of course, when COVID hit, my wife said, so what do you think? What's going to happen? I said, uh, well, I, we built it to get through it, but let's see. And then we just cranked through it because we're helping so many people. So... That was a long answer, but it started after the after the crash with my terms. So before that, uh, you had a real estate brokerage, correct? I had, so early 90s, built homes. We spot built. We never got financing on that either. I was too young to know that that was probably a wild idea, but we just did it and we didn't take any bank loans out. And then I bought a realty executives franchise and then I sold that in 2000 to Cobalt Banker. And that point on, I started doing my own investments and coaching people throughout uh, North America, US and Canada. So, so what made you kind of check out in 2000 and and say to yourself, you wanted to get into the coaching and and the other side of it. You know, I, so when I was a builder, I only had two downfalls in real estate. Once was when I was a builder, we're doing spot building and I got, I got real cocky and comfortable because it was working phenomenally well. And we said, Oh, good. Now let's build roads. Stupid. We had something was working and we went into something we didn't know how to do. So we got beat up there. And then I bought a realty executives franchise with my broker hat on, never was a broker. So I said, I, I'm going to do a five-year plan. I don't want to be in this forever. I wasn't excited about it, but I'll build it and I'll sell it in 2000. Everybody said, you can't sell a realtor business. Like you don't have anything to sell. We did because we were selling so many homes. Cobalt Bank wanted to suck us into their into their shell. So right. that was pointedly going to be an out in 2000, which we did. And we sold it to, to them and 
I had a little non-compete, but I didn't really care because I wasn't going to go out and be a broker anymore. So um, you you do coaching. You do a lot of coaching. And for us, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a bit of a grizzled vet. I've been doing this for 25 years now, and I've been around it my whole life. You know, mom first awesome. started uh, back in the 70s, actually, and she opened her own place, which is the namesake of the company, Cassandra Properties, in 1989. So as far back as I can remember, I've been around, you know, real estate. And for me, you know, we've had our, you know, measure of success in our local market. And it's very easy to fall into a pattern. I want to touch on this specifically because it's had such a huge impact on, on us. Uh, and, we, and it's just recently that we did it. So, uh, you know, you have a way of falling into the grind in real estate, right? If you have some success and you have something that's working, you don't lift your head up much, right? You're kind of pedaling the bike and you're trying to fix it while you're pedaling and, and you don't have time to kind of get off and focus. And for us, uh, one of the amazing silver linings with COVID was it gave us a little bit of time, not much, but it gave us a little bit of time to get off the damn bike, look at it and say, okay, how are we going to tune this thing up and what can we be doing better? Uh, and at the behest of one of my top producers here, um, you know, younger guy, he's like, look, I want you to give this coaching a try. You know, it, it's doing wonders for me. I think that if, if you, if you got into it, it could really unlock, you know, the portfolio for you. I kind of went in kicking and screaming and it has had like, I'm mad that I waited so long to get into the coaching. Uh, it has had such an unbelievable impact on not just my business, but my personal life in such a short period of time. I'm curious what prompted you back in 2000 to get on the coaching side of things. Yeah, someone, uh, I'm thinking back as you were talking, thinking you were going to go there. Someone asked me, he was out of Canada, uh, Richard Robbins, no relation to Tony. He, he and I were in a coaching program together as students in the 90s, late 90s. Uh, it was a higher end program at the time with the, with the mentor. We paid like a grand a month. That was a lot for me back then. And then when he broke off to start his own, he's still this day thriving. He asked me to coach with him and coach some of his clients in Canada and U.S. So that's that was my entry into it. And I started really, really getting the itch because I loved seeing people go from zero to, you know, whatever, 100. And then that then parlayed into after the crash, someone asking me, we're, we're near a war college here on the island is a war college. And one of the guys had been through three tours in Afghanistan. He heard about me and he said, hey, would you coach me? That was like 2013 or 14. I said, sure, come in my office. I just started helping him for like dirt cheap. We started doing some deals and then again, I started getting the itch like, oh, this is really cool. I'm helping people get something that they, they wouldn't be able to touch. So that was what got us into the term specifically coaching. But I, I'll comment on what you said about mental piece though, or however you said it, James, I forget how you said it. But the fact is you said like all of your life, not real estate. That's what you said. The fact is in real estate, if, you, if you're in a good coaching program, you're getting that. It's, a, it's like a whole life, one of my friends calls it, because a whole life millionaire, because you can't do this. Like you and I can stack skill set and systems onto people till we're blue in the face. And if they don't have the mental capacity and some of the other things that we teach, like discipline and all these things, it's just going to be stacking crap on crap. And I hate to say that, but people go running around real estate, like shiny object, shiny object, get more skills. Get It's not going to matter. You're going to work on the mental side. So that's a super long answer to your question, but I hope that helped. Yeah, it, it did. And I appreciate it because you're right. Part of the frustration here over the years is you you try and impart, like you said, the systems, right? We've got systems for everything. We, we kind of built the company where if we wanted to franchise, we could, you know, we've got a book with a procedure for everything. But awesome. if you're not connecting with them, 
it doesn't matter. Like you said, it stacks up and without the practical experience and without the connection and being mentally prepared and willing to uh, learn and get excited for it, it doesn't do you know, a whole hell of a lot of good. So the coaching that you're doing now, is it predominantly centered around terms? It's all, it's all around terms as far as the real estate components. So there's three pillars we teach. This is simple. You can visualize this. There's mindset pillar, skill set pillar, systems pillar. And I think the weight probably goes or should go for people 80, 80, 10, 10. Um, but we teach all, we have, we have mindset pieces as part of our training material. Cause again, I'm seeing people come out of the gate with our, with our core program going, Hey, my first deal, 40 days. I have others doing the same course and it takes them 365 days. Why is that? It's the mindset piece. Interesting. Those are the three pillars. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and jump in and talk to the audience. If you don't mind as basic a set of terms as you can, because again, our audience is, is, is a pretty wide berth there. We've got some really experienced savvy vets and we've got some folks that are thinking about, you know, playing in the real estate game one way or another. Uh, so explain to the audience, if you would, first, what are terms or what is seller financing? Sure. So terms to us, because everybody can define it differently, is being able to purchase property on your terms means no banks, no credit needed. I come out of the crash. This was why I had to design this. No cash. So our lease purchases, for example, are built in with $10 deposit. So terms, the way we buy is lease purchase, owner financing, and subject to existing financing. That latter one, if you're new, just simply means I'm buying the house. The loan is staying in the seller's name, but I am taking title. And that's usually for someone that's stressed out, has to have immediate relief versus the owner financing arm, which literally looks for free and clear properties. No debt on them. So you got the opposite type of seller makeup there, avatar. So those are three ways we buy. I could dive into any one of those more deeply if you'd like to. I'd like, for, if you don't mind, if, if you could dive into each one of them, because I've got yep. different questions for each different okay. subset. So I'll hit 10,000 per view on each. You bring me back to whatever you want. Um, well, let's start with the lease purchase, only because if you're new, that's an easy entry. No deed is transferring and a $10 deposit is written into our agreements. And we do 25 or 30 of these a month. So I want to dispel anyone saying or thinking, well, it doesn't work here or it doesn't work in my price range. No, it does. There's, there's few exceptions we'll get back to. Lease purchase says this. Let's say James has a home. I'm just going to make up a very simple number and I'm going to give the seller a little equity. There's all kinds of variations. James's home is, uh, we agree, is worth 300 grand. He didn't sell it on the open market for whatever reason, functionality, too high price, whatever. He owes 250. I say, hey, James, and this is during COVID, it's especially true. Hey, James, here's what I can do. I will enter into a lease purchase agreement whereby I pay your underlying debt every month. And it's only after I have my buyer to cover that. And at the end of the lease term, let's call it 36 months, I'm going to give you your 50 grand. That's being locked in at the beginning. You're hands off. I'm handling your entire house as if I owned it. And I'll pay off your loan at the end too. Now the loan's not 250 anymore, right? If it's a three-year term or whatever, it's going to be less because I'm benefiting from the principal pay down. Now you're happy. You got technically you got what the cash you want out of it. You couldn't even get it on the open market. You probably got more cash out of it. I'm giving you the whole 50. Uh, your debt is handled, especially during COVID, or if you had a second home or something and just was a headache right now. In the meantime, I put a tenant buyer in that property that needs time to get financing. This is also very prevalent right now. It's prevalent already, but with COVID, it made it made it harder for people to get financing. So while they're getting mortgage ready. They're just going to do a rent to own with me. They got to put skin in the game. They got to be a serious buyer, not a wannabe renter. But 
That's how we exit all our properties. And we have trademarked our three payday system in the United States so that all the years that James, you and I do deals, instead of getting paid once, we get paid three times on a deal. That was a key component for me too, coming out of the crash. I was done with the getting on a treadmill and doing deals and doing deals and doing deals and getting paid once. So that's the least purchase. And that's sort of a mini exit. We exit the same most of the time. All right. So just before um, you before you move on from that, because I've got some questions there already. Sure. So just to slow that down a little bit, um, a house is on the market. Expireds, I would think, is a good place that you find this Always, type yeah. of scenario, right? So <clears throat> people have expired listings, weren't able to sell it with a realtor. They're probably frustrated or annoyed at this point. Their loan is for two fifty. the The house was on the market for three hundred. You come in and you make a deal, and you're locking in basically. Hey, there's fifty thousand in equity here. Is that is that how this goes? And you're yeah. Your if it was expired, I might I might ask the question. When it's brand new, I'd do that right away. But now I ask the question, James, when you were on the market, what did you think you were going to net? You didn't, but what did you think you were going to net? And you might say with the commission, you might say, uh, 280. Perfect. That's the number I lock in. That's that's more close to what I would do. Okay. So you lock it in and you sign a lease purchase with this seller. And Correct. what consideration are they getting the seller at that point? $10, which doesn't really come out of pocket, but it's written in the agreement, $10. So they get 10 bucks and you basically have a lease that's allowing you to purchase the home at that 280 for a prescribed period, three years in this case. Yep. The only little caveat there is our agreement, it's section 13 of our agreement. I've done so many of these. It says purchase price. Purchase price in that example would be equal to 30,000 cash plus payoff of underlying debt. That's how we phrase it. Got it. Okay. So you're locking in the 30,000 this way, any principal that you're paying during this three-year period is coming down and you enjoy that benefit down the road. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Now they have um, a, a loan, let's say that they're in uh, year eight of a 30-year mortgage. Uh, it doesn't matter fixed or variable, whatever it is, or maybe it does. How are you handling that debt service at that point? Okay, so when I'm new, I'm going to make that lease purchase contingent upon, it's all fill in the blanks in our agreements, but I'm going to make the lease purchase contingent upon finding my tenant buyer. And then it says 30 days after I take occupancy, my tenant buyer takes occupancy, I'm going to stop paying your loan. That means I pick up that first month for an extra little bonus. My buyer pays it, but I don't pay the mortgage till 30 days out. If I can negotiate more, I, I, I will, but usually that's about what they'll accept, what 30 days out. Uh, and then I'm free to go ahead and stop that tenant buyer paying me, paying the underlying debt directly to the bank. The difference is my payday two. Payday one is when the buyer comes in the property, they give me a non-refundable down payment, just like they would if they're buying the house. So payday one and two are right there. Payday three is at the end. Okay. So I've given the seller 10 bucks. They've given me how long of a period of time do you usually get to find somebody? Uh, okay. Good question. Some sellers go, Hey, I can't sell it. I just do what you got to do. They don't have, they don't pin you to a time, but a lot of times they want to know. And I'll usually say within 180 days. And okay. if it, that so, backs off to 120, I'm fine with that because we're usually finding them between literally five days, like the first weekend, all the way up to about 120 days because the buyer pool for terms is enormous, especially now. Enormous. Like 80% of the buyers can't get financing right now. So you're getting 180 days. During that 180 days, the seller is still paying their mortgage? Yeah. If that's if you're new, you're going to do that. If you're if you're more experienced and you have some flow coming in, you might change that. I'm just giving you some vanilla deals, you know? Sure. 
So uh, you, you have a, a way, I'm sure, as we all do, of sourcing buyers. Like you said, the capital markets are miserable right now. It's very difficult um, to get through. Even even really quality buyers are having a difficult time getting financing done. I agree. Don't know what the hell is coming next, right? Um, as the courts open back up, we'll learn a lot more. But I don't want to get off on that tangent. So you're now, uh, you're in 10 bucks is basically your exposure plus the paperwork, whatever that costs to put together, running some ads, you've got buyers that are coming in. Now the new buyer comes in and you're saying to the new buyer, uh, instead of, hey, I'm a traditional bank uh, and or seller, I need 20% down and I need a, you know, 750 credit and I need a, you know, 1.20 debt service coverage ratio and all the other pain in the backside things. You're now finding these buyers and you're saying, hey, this is a $300,000 home you know, can you come up with what, what is it? 10%, 5%, how much are you letting buyers in for? The ideal percentage is going to be whatever they gonna, they're going to need. Meaning if it's a conventional a jumbo, whatever, by the time they get financing, however, regardless of that, we're not getting them in the home. If everything's perfect, we're not putting them in the home to start with anything less than 3%. We prefer closer to seven. And when I say to start, they're going to then James give us payments throughout the term to get themselves more down payment, more mortgage ready, and quite frankly, invest them in the home, right? It gets them tied to the home. So example, uh, most people with their tax refunds will put more down with us every single year. So February is a big time for us, February, March. And then we had a, a recent uh, uh, out in Western Mass, we had a, a state trooper. He knew he had sergeant pay retroactive come and he said, hey, I could commit this much. He knew the schedule. So whatever they could do to put more down to get their down payment up will do, but they gotta be able to be strong enough and at least 3% to get in the door. Okay, so they come in, it's a $300,000 home. Let's say they land on 5%, right? Sure. $15,000, they say, okay, Chris, I've got 15 grand now. Um, and I assume there's a methodology you're working through to figure out what is the, the maximum uh, monthly payment that they can make that makes relative sense, right? Uh, and you're kind of backing that number in. Let's say that number is $1,700 a month. Um, they give you the $15,000. Where does the 15 grand go? It's non-refundable, so it goes into our, our pocket, HIP National Bank. Okay, 15,000 is yours. This person now takes possession of the home yeah. in uh, in a lease purchase from you. So you're kind of sandwiching this transaction with this transaction, you know, your debt service and the underlying loan is $1,100 a month. You get right. them in for $1,700 a month. You're keeping the $600 spread. Correct. You got it precisely. Yep. And we protect our interest because how do we, you know, how do we avoid the being a realtor, being licensed, even though some of our students are, I'm not anymore on purpose. How we protect is we have a controlling interest and we're on title. We put a notice of option on, we, re we record it. It does two things, puts us on title, but it also clouds the title in case three years come by and that owner who sees us getting a big juicy check gets amnesia of why and how we did the deal three years ago. So sure. we're protected. So you're recording an option upfront um, so that they can't refinance, they can't sell, they can't do anything because they made right. this deal with you in earnest. Right. Okay. Now uh, let's fast forward three years. And at this point, you've made the $15,000 deposit. You've made 7,200 a year in spread. So there's another 21,000 and change. And this perch, this leaser or this tenant 
now wants to own. They're ready to, you know, they've straightened out their credit. They've done whatever it is they need to do. What portion, if any, of the money that you've already taken is attributed to the down payment? And how do you structure that when you're going to get them traditional financing? Yep. So the monthly payment is a lease only, no credit. The front end deposit is a deposit, gets credited. However, we had this discussion this morning with a student. They've got to, and this is an education process and a checklist we use, but the buyers have got to source that just like they do in a conventional deal. So here comes the 36 month point. Okay, time for financing. That 15 grand has to be sourced. Where did you get it? Where's the paper trail back then? Not, oh, my aunt gave it to me. We just had this happen this morning. My student forgot to do all that. And then the person found out, we found out that the person had their mother write the cashier's check way back then. Problemo. Now they got to write a gift letter and all that garbage. So they got to act just like they're going to get a loan when they start this process. They can't just throw cash at it and not have sourcing. All right. At the very end, a purchase sales agreement is either created newly because the underwriter wants to see a fresh one between buyer and seller, or if the underwriter is experienced, they'll take our original rental agreement, which has a purchase rider, and they'll get it done with our existing agreement. I'm okay either way, it's like 50-50, but it gets cashed out at the end that way. All right, so just again, to slow it down for a minute for the benefit of the audience, what Chris is talking about is that initial 15 grand, uh, and I'm starting to see, I have to tell you, Chris, I came into this as skeptic, um, but you're, you're converting me pretty quick here. Um, <laughs> Good. When you're taking that initial deposit, folks, you've got to treat that as if you were a real lender and you were meeting real criteria. Um, right, that right. money probably has to be seasoned, which means it has to have been in their account for X amount of time. That's easy enough to verify. You just get you know, bank statements for the three previous months. Um, and if it isn't seasoned, you have to source it. Where did it come from? Was it a bonus? Was it a commission? Was it a settlement? Whatever it was. Um, and if it was a gift, then you've got to go through the process of documenting the gift, sourcing where that gift came from, and then make right. damn sure that that gift is, uh, is going to, that by it being a gift, you'll be eligible for different programs than if it's your own money in most cases. So, uh, the banks, when the, your, so when the, this new buyer or this, this tenant is becoming a new buyer, the banks are okay using that deposit from three years ago and sourcing it toward this transaction. Yep. I, we cash out to the tune of two or three days a month now for the foreseeable future, as far as I can see, and this hasn't been an issue. Okay. So the buyer is ready to close. Uh, they've been putting X amount of dollars a month aside, building up the balance of their deposit. Uh, we're hopefully in a better capital market situation. Uh, they're getting ready to, to buy the home. It's a 10% down deal, 20%, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Uh, they qualify you have a, a, a as uh, is it an addendum to your lease, the purchase and sale agreement? Are you drafting new new lease, new purchase and sale agreements at that time? What do you usually do? Sometimes 50-50 chance of the underwriter being experienced enough where they go, I get it. I see your lease purchase. I see the attached rider, which gives them an option to purchase. I get it. I can get a finance with this. Other ones say, I need a clean PS between my your buyer and your seller. And, and that's how I'm protected with my notice, right? Because at the, at the, when they close, they're going to do title and see me on there. So either way is good with me, as long as the end result comes out the same. And sometimes they, the underwriter will tweak the program the buyer's going through too, and my numbers change. But as long as my net is the same, I'm okay. Now, the, the, let's, let's go back to the monthly number, the 1,700 versus 1,100. Are you only paying down per the amortization schedule during that time? 
Are you, yeah. are you advance paying? Are you prepaying anything like that? Or you're just staying in lockstep with that note? Staying in lockstep if it's a sandwich lease. If I had title, it would be a different answer. But yeah, if it's a sandwich lease, I'm, I'm going to just pay the payment. Okay. So you're th that's literally then straight profit, whatever that spread is. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's paid straight profit. Okay. Yep. So now you're getting down to the wire. They're getting ready to close. Um, you at the time of executing the lease with this new tenant, soon to be purchaser, how are you uh, zeroing in on a number, right? The house may have been on the market. There's old listings that they're looking at. Um, as you had said, you're coming in and you're, you're making a deal under that number. Are, are, are you doing any improvements to the home? Are you sprucing it up? Are you staging it? Or is it just straight transaction, boom, boom, and, and you're getting as close to that 300 number as you can? Okay, a couple of things come out of that. So if we did that deal where the house was on the market for three and then you and I decided, hey, probably 280, that house probably would have went on the market for around 329.9, first of all, back then. Second of all, at the very, in the work issue, no, we don't do work to the house. If there's work needed, as long as it's habitable, I'm putting it out as a rent tone handyman. Either way, I'm not putting money in the house. And, the, and those go well. There's a lot of contracts that can't or never decide to get financing. They just won't be mortgage ready for a while. So at the very end, if there's any FHA requirements, like, hey, there's peel and pay any of that, in our agreements, that's the buyer's responsibility, not me. Everything, once they take that home over, it's their responsibility. And so when that cashes out, they locked in their price, though, at the very beginning. So they acted like, behaved like, capture equity-like, and pay for like they're a buyer. They just don't have a loan yet. So if that 329.9 house that I sold them on rent to own is now 369.9, fantastic for them. If it's now 310, Okay, same problem as you had if you bought it. It's going down or up. Okay, so at what point back with your original seller, are they out of the home? Completely loaned down everything? No, physically. Oh, physically? Uh, as soon as I find my buyer and they start occupancy, those guys are gone. What percentage of sellers that you do deals with, do you encounter issues with them leaving? I would have said none until recently. I have a student in Chicago who two in a row had sellers not realizing how fast he would do it. Cause it's almost like too good to be true. If they've been on the market for a year with a realtor, they go, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll try it. And they said that they pushed back on him. They're like, no, we can't leave. He said, no, you don't understand. We have an agreement. I sold your home. And they said, well, the buyers can go in a hotel. And he said, no, you go in a hotel. You have an agreement with us. This is a right. family of five moving in here. This is a moral and ethical issue here. So sometimes they'll push back, but it's, it hasn't been an issue to get them out. It's just a matter of, uh-oh, this is true. I got to get out now. It might be a, 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 a month delay. I think he, he negotiated a month delay on that. So, folks, during this period of time, Chris is keeping that spread in the payment. And... He's paying down per the amortization schedule. So if we assumed it was in year seven or eight of a loan over a three-year period, maybe he's paying another 10, 12,000 off of that note, um, that 250 note that we originally talked about. So he's got exposure of between 238 and 240. He's collected the 15,000 deposit. He's collected 21,000 and change in payments, net, net, net payments above the debt service. And now the tenant about to be an owner 
comes up with the balance that they need to come up with to transact. And he's selling this thing at 339, 329, 359, and keeping the spread that the new bank is providing from the 359 or 339 less the deposit down to the 240 or 238 that you have left on that original loan. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's the three paydays that you just outlined. One important thing I should say, very important. If you go on right now to any any educator that does lease purchase, and this stuff's been around for a long time, we just made a system out of it. You will hear many of them say, I was on a show last night and this guy agreed with me. You will hear them say, hey, I don't even qualify my buyers. I put them in the home. I collect the deposit. If they don't qualify, it's okay. I do it again and collect another deposit. Okay. He, may, he or she may get away with that legally, and that might be cool that he got the profit. However, that morally and ethically stinks. So they're setting up the buyers to fail. Right. We set the buyers up. We have about a 2 to 5% default rate. Some of these guys are out there. They have their inverse relationship. It's disgusting. So we heavily vet them at the beginning. So they go through like they're going to get a loan, James. They go through my credit team as the company, and they'll vet them, and they'll give me a 40-page report, beginning and back-end scores, everything. But here's their plan to get mortgage ready. And they can be mortgage ready within these dates. And then we make sure those dates fit within our dates. Now you're covered not only morally and ethically, but legally. Hey, I set these guys up to win. They messed their life up if they ran their credit cards up or something, you know? That's so that important. was my, my next question, Chris, is how much vetting were you doing of this huge. prospective purchaser? A huge amount of vetting. Yeah, so you really are trying to get people that for a myriad of different reasons, right? There's, there's so many reasons that your credit can get messed up or you just don't have the ability to source a deposit um, at that time. You're legitimately giving them a real rent to own scenario where they're set up for success. Yeah. And, and not just credit. That is a big one to your point, but also self-employed. My son-in-law came to work for me after bartending and personal training in 2015. He couldn't get a house, yet he bought his first house, lease purchase decided not to get a loan and sold it for about 124 grand profit. I mean, so self-employed needs seasoning, as you know, or they transferred here. I had a, a landscaper come from New York to, to Rhode Island, squeaky clean credit, but they wanted to see seasoning with his business here. He had a cool business here, but they wanted to see it for a year or two. So that stuff happens all day long. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in the business. It's extremely frustrating. You know, I've yeah. got 800 credit. And I come up against issues all the time when I go for mortgages because I'm self-employed. It's just. Okay. So you beg, I got to tell you a story then. So I don't, we don't sign on loans. I just won't do it. But my personal residence, like, okay, I make an exception, right? It's my, it's my stuff. So I had applied recently for something and I was asking if like a 23% debt to the debt to uh, equity. Like I'm not asking for a lot of money and I have like 780, 800 and 803. Those are my three scores. And it's a pain in the butt. I'll, I'll get it done, but it's a pain in the butt. It is. And this is why banks seem to continue to bump up against issues. I get these massive scale institutions and I get that they have a process and a protocol. Uh, we're doing a deal now in Pennsylvania where I bought a hundred and some odd acres. The timber value on the acreage from certified appraisers was a half a million dollars. Just, I'm in, paying, timber. Uh, just in timber. I'm paying just over 200,000. It was an estate deal. They wanted a quick sale. Fine. The comps comped out at 800, not including the timber, just the comps. Yeah. They wanted 30% down because <laughs> I'm self-employed. It was like 
the, the property is worth a million one, a million two, if you're a complete buffoon, right? Yeah. If you mess everything up, you're going to pull a million bucks out of this thing. They just couldn't wrap their head around it. But those no. types of challenges are opportunity for you. Sure. Yeah, huge. It, this is... <laughs> This is pretty damn brilliant, man. I got to tell you, I've been in, in the business for a, a long time. And, and we, we, like I said in the beginning, we, we don't come up against seller um, financing deals often. But I, I guess in large part, it's because of just being in that, you know, mode of how deals transact here. So that's the lease option. What's the next one? Well, I think it 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 begs to talk about owner financing time wise because owner financing flips the scale. Yeah. Owner financing says, especially it, like where you are to our earlier chat, I we have a niche within owner financing, and that is free and clear properties. So, on the island here, I am. I'm on a three town island. Most people will say to me, "Oh, you can't you can't find sellers to do that around here. The market's hot because the water's all around us." Okay, good. I get it. Guess what? My office building I bought in November of eighteen was free and clear. I bought an owner financing, went through no underwriting whatsoever. The deal took 10 minutes and two attorneys and we're in it to this day. Owner financing. So about a third of the properties in the United States are, are free and clear. So those sellers, usually my experience has been, are in good shape. They're in good shape. They, they're definitely, they did something right. They're super savvy and super creative and they love creativity. So they usually want their price. I just, I'll give them their price. I gave them his asking price but I just wanted time and I got 20 years on that deal. So I just need wow. at least four years, but I got 20 on my office building because I'm going to stick around. I'm not trying to do a rent own or something. So here's our, our goal. Our goal is to do principal only payments. We have a house at Cape Cod. You're somewhat local. So you know Cape Cod. We have a house on a bluff overlooking the open ocean. We bought for 945 punchline. We bought it from a realtor. She owned it. And we bought it for 945. We paid 2,500 a month principal only payments. Think of that regarding kind of that recession resistant mindset. It hammers down principal. And if you end up doing a rent own and you have a tenant buyer paying you, you, you have the spread plus the principal getting hammered down. Those deals are the most lucrative deals. Those are what's six figure benefit, deals. What's the benefit of the seller to do a principal only deal? Uh, typically, it's either going to be, they, they, a lot of them have, it's not detrimental. To, I'm not trying to throw an arrow at them, but they'll say, I want my price. I, ego, I got, I want this. I couldn't get this. That's my price. I'm not budget. Okay, fine. So I'll give you a price. You won't have to claim interest income. Rates are low anyway. And I'm going to pay you. I'm going to give you a premium even. I'm going to pay you principal over time because after three to six months, I'll eat that premium up. Uh, it could be estate planning. could be trust reasons. This guy said to me, do not, do not, do not cash me out. Yeah, he wanted an owner financing deal, but he wouldn't take principal only for, forever. So we did like the first, I think it was like nine to 12 months, heavy principal, all principal with heavy payments extra. And then we took the balance and amortized it at 5.2 for him. That was back in 18. So I got my way. I brought my balance from like 550 to 480. And then we amortized the balance. All right. So just to slow this down again for the, the audience, for some of you, these terms may be um, not as familiar as they are for Chris and I. So if you go out today and you took a 30-year mortgage and you're and people are still shocked to hear this, uh, and let's say your, your mortgage payment's $2,800 a month, the first several years of that payment that you're paying $2,800 a month of your hard-earned money, you're probably paying down $150 to $200 a month in principal, which yeah, means disgusting. if you owed $500,000 and you make a $2,800 payment month one, you only owe the bank 
about 150 bucks less in that first month payment. And that stays for years. It's not until you get into the double digits that the amortization starts to catch up. And then eventually you'll get on the other side of it where at least 50% of your payments going to principal. And then toward the end of the loan, the majority of your payments going to principal. So what Chris is doing is he's setting up principal only payments. The, the seller owned this thing free and clear. So for them, it's, annuity, it's an annuity, right? It's almost right. like a reverse mortgage, but they don't have to have the worry of owning the asset anymore. Chris now bought it. He took title. This isn't the lease scenario, right? You're taking title right. and you're paying them just as a principal only payment. And that's knocking down that number that you own to the seller. How much do you usually have to put down in those scenarios or is it all over the map? Uh, it's all over the map, but usually on a house, you know, uh, let me clarify. So under like six or 700 grand, we usually put nothing down or small, like a grand or something. Uh, up above in that ocean front, we put eight or nine grand down. We broke the rule there, but that's still great. Eight or nine grand? We put eight or nine it? grand down and we paid her transfer tax from Massachusetts because you can't put no, nothing down and go, hey, pay your transfer tax too. So we usually pay the transfer tax on those deals. Wow. Wow. Okay, so are you typically carrying those deals to term or are you knocking them out at some point? What's, what's happening there? Okay, so this is a cool twist. So let me give you a metric too, and then I'll give you a twist to a little deal that, that I think will be surprising numbers for people. So typically we go, if, if you can structure a deal, $200,000 purchase price, that's most markets. You find a house, 200 grand purchase, and you can structure at least 48 months. Okay, four years, and you can structure $925 a month principal payments. Those three metrics, our three paydays will produce over six figures. That deal was like 128 grand, that the one I'm thinking of. Now, to answer your question, what we do is in the in a four-year deal by year two, we will during the holidays write to the sellers and we'll say, look, you got two years left. How about if we prepay some more principal? In this case, it was a small house. We've said six grand we'll give you, and you extend us a year on the term. They said, sure, they're retired. There's just extra cash flow for them. The next year, they wrote us. Will you do that thing again? They're down in South Carolina. We, I still have this deal. So a four-year deal became a five, became a six. Then last Christmas, it was a year and a half ago now, Zach said, my son-in-law, hey, ask him if they'll go 15 years and we'll give him some interest now. Their account within 24 hours answered us and loved it. We added 4.2 or 4.5% interest, kept the payment the same. That deal's a 21-year deal now. Started as four. So there's always a deal after the deal. And there's always ways to tear the principal to interest. That house went from having 128 grand profit to it'll be it'll be more profit than the house was purchased for. Purchased for 183. Wow. So are you in that instance? Are you doing the lease, or are you the owner of it at that point? What what is the use of that type of deal? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Because usually, if the buyer was on the ball, they would have cashed this out, and I would I would have had no benefit to extend it. This right. this buyer, there's five income earners in this house, and they worked their tail off, and they were stressed. And I said, I called them after I got my extension. I said, Good news. Don't stress. I'll extend it for you. They're still there. They're tickle pink. They still have their option to buy because I keep extending it for them. I'm not going to chop their legs out. They have good equity. This house is probably worth 280, 290. I sold it for two and a quarter. So they're happy. I keep extending them because I'm getting all that principal. And I read it off, of course, and appreciate it. So, I mean, wow, you're you're basically just taking a portion of the profit that you made in the second way of making profit in your system. You're offering uh, to pay down what you owe at the end of the day, which is dollar for dollar increasing or, or 
reimbursing or giving you the ability to recapture in option exactly. three of how you get yeah. paid out. Exactly. And what you're doing is you're extending the term by which you're taking the spread between what you're paying and what the buyer is paying you or the, the potential buyer is paying you. It's you are by far the, the first host that actually gets my fast explanations. Dude, like uh, I, I have to tell you, like I, I we we do these things and we have a lot of fun with them. And I've been waiting for this podcast because, you know, as I do my homework, I was like, I want to put Chris through the paces here and see, is this what I think it might be? And I was a skeptic, man, but you are very quickly turning me here. So you, okay. So that's scenario two. Let me not knock, knock you off the pace here. What was scenario three? Subject to own, uh, subject to existing financing. That's usually completely opposite from a seller who's in good shape. They owe nothing. This is usually a seller that goes help. I, I need help yesterday. So I'll give you a scenario. Alpha, Massachusetts, expired listing. I did the call personally because we don't do that as much anymore. The guy said, I'm trying to sell a FISBO now. I'll let you know. I'm trying to get custody of my grandson. Still going to court. I'm not in a hurry. So, okay, I, I have options. Just let me know. I explained it. He was debt free. I'm uh, sorry. He, he had a loan. House is only worth, he is off like 129. This is a tiny house. He owed about 78 or so at the time, existing loan, probably, I don't know, 10 years in maybe, to your scenario earlier. Long story short, six months later, he got custody of his grandson, called me and said, like, my truck is packed. I'm going to Washington State, I'm going cross country. Can you come do that thing? So we bought his house. My attorney does up to settlement statement, the same as always. Instead of new money coming to the table, on the HUD, it says, subject to existing financing, 78 grand. I pay his transfer tax, it was Massachusetts. I buy the home, deed transfers, loan stays in his name, he goes to Washington. I make payments on the loan every month. I sell it the same way I've been talking about all, 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 all interview here. Uh, that one was very vanilla deal. The owner did go through credit repair, did get cashed out, and we had our payday three. We gave, and we own the house. We gave them a five-year term, they cashed out in three and a half. So how are you take, I get the first scenario where it's a lease option and you don't have to worry about a bank kind of raising their hand saying, whoa, 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 this isn't the credit yeah. that I signed on for. How are yeah. you doing that in scenario three? A couple of things. And, and, and again, if you're listening, this is not legal or accounting advice, it's just how we do it. So we, we do two things and we've never had an issue. Number one, make sure it gets paid on time. Banks, they don't care if they get paid on time. Number two, they, they perceive us as sort of the quasi management company. So we add ourselves to the certificate of insurance. Obviously, we have to insure it now. We keep the owner's name on it. We then put it in a trust. And the trust is, if it's 123 Jump Street, the trust is, and, and, you, and you own it, it would be 123 Jump Street, Prendamano Family Trust. So we name it, and that kind of gives the impression of the kind of family planning trust situation, and we've never had a pullback on it. So the, the outside risk there would be, if a bank raises their hand and says, wait a minute, this isn't the, you know, the, the buyer that we approved, you know, out of the gate here, chances are they're just going to call the loan and they're going to say, hey, pay us off the balance. But if they're, you know, banks are not folks and people don't get this either. Banks are not in the business of taking real estate. They do oh, not want to own current. your real estate. They do not want to, to do that. So if you're in a difficult situation and many of us are coming out of COVID, 
here's some really creative solutions of, of how we can put together workarounds to help you. Chris has uh, got a, a really neat system set up here, but at the end of the day, it's the bank's interest to not take that property. Their standard of care is much higher than your standard of care. There are several steps that they're gonna have to go through to winterize the house, board it up, get it insured. Like that's the last thing that they wanna do. So for them to- You can also that, just change beneficiaries. You can jump on deed. Like there's all kinds of pivots as you know. Like any of these deals, can can pivots come at you? Yeah, other answers. Yeah, that's fine. So you were licensed as an agent and you said you've specifically gone out of your way to not have a license anymore. Is that because of fair housing laws and the fiduciaries and all of that? Or what was the logic behind that? No, it's actually, I didn't want the drama. Like if I did a call or a mailing to a house and it was a listing, I get the call, the whiny call, you're calling yeah. my list, you're trying to take, no, I'm not, I'm trying to buy it. No, you tried. So now I get the same call and they want my help and I give them a referral fee. Now they, now they welcome it because they don't feel threatened. Got it. Okay. So I would think that expireds, FISBOs are like, uh, do you have like a CRM or something that's going after these things? Like how, so like I, I'm so enthralled by this. I could stay in the numbers and the deal for hours and I know we're getting up against it here. So just talk real quick if you can about yeah. how are you sourcing the deals? How are you finding the, the sellers and the buyers? On our site, we have the resources, but real plain and simple, it's it's a company that provides my plus leads. They provide our expires, our FISBOs, and our for rent by owners. Then we have another software called PropStream that I can pull tired landlords. I can pull free and clear. I can pull, as you know, you could sellers that wear black socks on Thursday and have no debt. You know, it's crazy. You could pull any list on here that long as the debt is there. So we could pull it that way. And, and it would the market the way it is now instead of just having virtual assistants call those three categories, which we usually get by with, it's slimmer pickings because things are selling. So we do do some postcards light, not, not heavy, like a hundred or 200 every other week or something like that to free and clear plenty of leads. So how many of these have, have you done in your family? And then how many have been done in this organization that you've built? We've done about 280, 280 in our family. And then the organization is approaching a total of 500. We have a goal for 2022 of 1500 with them. So just with them, the students, we do 25 or 30 a month. So here's a, a guy, folks, who had hard times in 08. And many of us did. Believe me when I tell you, that was, that was a rough run of it. Yep. Um, but <laughs> instead of going home and saying, oh, gee whiz, you know, nothing I could have done about it and taken a beating. You came back and reinvented yourself in a brilliant system. I got to tell you, this is amazing. Like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be in touch with you for sure, because like, this is a, it's a whole different side of it. And again, we've done everything from co-ops to $120 million, you know, industrial complex deals. This is something we've never dabbled in because it's just never been presented this way. This is why I love the podcast. I love connecting with good people like Chris. And Same I hope here. that this de delivers value to you guys the way it's delivering it to me because this is remarkable. So, Chris, I, I want to go ahead and sign up, right? What's the process? How do we do it? Talk the audience through that if you would. I tell people this. Uh, I, I'm not so naive to think as, well, as complimentary as you just were that our niche is the only niche. So I say to people, three steps. Find the niche you want. If this is a great 
find the person in the niche that you can relate to. And I don't just mean real estate. I mean, morally, ethically, we're very family based. We're very blunt from New England. There's no gray area with us. And third is then you got to put the blindness off at 36 months. Cause as you know, there's too many shiny objects in real estate. And, and like we said earlier about stacking all these skills, no 36 months with one system, then you can delve out. Uh, if you're interested in learning more for free with us, cause I'm big on free. Just go to the master's class. It's a replay of a master's class. My son-in-law and I did 35 minutes and it's free. Go to smartrealestatecoach.com forward slash master's class. If you want to the numbers like James and I, our YouTube channel, just go smart real estate coach. Our YouTube channel posts hundreds, probably 120, 30 now of our, of our deals whiteboarded. You see the good, the bad, the ugly, the three paydays, what the motivations were, what we said, we whiteboard them for you. They're out there publicly for free. Now, how far are you taking it, Chris? Are you just, um, not just, or, or is your program focused around bringing the people up to speed, educating them, showing them how to do this, or are you also on the lead gen side for them, or is that completely separate? We sell a course that everybody has to go through. You wouldn't know the language, but then our programs are all transaction-based. We do deals and rev share with them up to a certain cap, a cap out rate, we call it, which is... 10 deals because they kind of know it by then. They're not experts, but they know it by then. So you, you, you're in the trenches with us. We're talking to your buyers and sellers. I work with a higher level one, but we have certified coaches and my son-in-law works with some too. We're doing deals. We're based on not can we sell five programs. We're based on transactions. That's part of our mission, 1500 by 2022. If it doesn't fit and feed that, we don't do it. Got it. All right. So I know you, you've got to jump here one more time, Chris. What's the best way to get in touch with you? They can go to smartrealestatecoach.com as a contact button. I am on Clubhouse. If you want to follow myself or my son-in-law, Zachary Beach, we're on there three days a week with the Wicked Smart Club, Real Estate Club. And then the master's class is smartrealestatecoach.com forward slash master's class. Chris, this was absolutely uh, one of my most enjoyable episodes. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Best of luck. And, and we're going to be in touch. You know, we do a lot of business out of state. And I think this is a really neat way to to build a hell of an annuity. I mean, this is Love this it. is pretty cool. Thanks a lot Love for your it. time. I appreciate you getting your grasp on it. So thank you. This is a good interview. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, guys. Chris Prefontaine, a really wicked system. I have to say it. As much as I'm not a fan of of masks, I'm a big Giants <laughs> fan, a big Yankee fan. We got to give him credit here. He's got an amazing system. Please reach out. As always, everyone. Thank you. We appreciate the audience. Keep the suggestions coming and everyone out there, stay safe.